Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Amen. You guys can take a seat. My name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision. I'm excited to be here today. How about you? Yeah. All right. Recent one was a blast spreading out around the city to serve, but it's good to be back as we continue our series on relationships and marriage called First Comes Love, Then Comes Baggage. And I kick things off today by addressing the elephant in the room. Yes. Jenny did hit me with her car because I've told too many jokes about her during this series. It's like, this is what I get. No? Ah. I tore my labrum a while back and I just had it screwed into place and it's been an adventure. Now I'm in this immobilization brace for six weeks and you guys, I, like I'm right-handed. I've never prepared for a Sunday message in my life without scribbling five or ten pages worth of handwritten notes about all my thoughts and then typing it and then walking up and talking with both my hands. My right arm is one of my top two favorite preaching arms and now I can't even use it to do any of that normal stuff. So just want to apologize for whatever I say today. If it makes no sense, I'm sorry. I have no idea how to operate like this. And I'm so, so tired. The first night, my nerve block wore off before I had any pain medication, so I didn't sleep at all. The next day, I told Jenny, it's all right. I got nowhere to go but up from here. Wrong. So wrong. Two hours later, I fell down the stairs, smashed my shoulder into the handrail, and bruised my tailbone. Puked twice because of the pain, but then I told Jenny, well, that was real bad, but now I've got nowhere to go but up from here. Wrong again. Super wrong. Apparently, one in a thousand people who have an operation like this have this muscular reaction to the nerve block, and 48 hours after it wears off, they get incurable hiccups. That was me. I had like severe gut-level hiccups for two straight days. It made me so nauseous, and it hurt my shoulder so bad every time I did it, I didn't sleep for another whole night until I went back to the doctor, and they put me on some muscle relaxants to get my diaphragm to stop spasming. And I think the reason I tell that story on a Sunday where we're talking about marriage is that sometimes marriage is difficult. It's hard and frustrating, and you might find yourself in a space where you're tempted to think, we got nowhere to go but up from here. But you are probably wrong. It can always get even worse. <laughs> There's no dumpster fire that can't become a bigger dumpster fire. And that's really my main idea about marriage today. <laughs> Just kidding. I do though want to talk about this idea that I think will prevent marriages from crashing and burning. And it's a concept that's important for everyone in here to understand. If you're here and you're not married, if you are married, if you don't ever want to be married, but you have the opportunity to speak into the lives of married people around you, we all got to get this. Because the reality of our world is that so many marriages start out looking like this. There's the flowers and the dress and the church, and it's everything you ever dreamed of, and then they end up looking like this. They usually take a while to get there. Some of us have experienced it all in one day, but I know some of you are, are looking confused right now. Like, it looks like Jenny on those pictures, but who's the skinny kid with hair? I wasn't always like this, all right? But now you know how she treats me. It's no wonder. But really, 
like so many marriages start off so beautifully and end up so hideously. No one walks to the altar thinking, I would like to have the worst marriage ever, right? But there are a lot of them that struggle and then fall apart. And the question is, what happens? How do they get there? Well, I think at some point after you're married, after the fairy tale wedding day, you start to notice cracks in your relationship. And it's only natural to assume that they occurred after you got married. You try and pinpoint when it happened, you're like, well, we used to be so happy. Things weren't perfect, but we were in love, and it was great, and now we got married, and it's hard, and it stinks. That must have happened after he, after she, once we. And sometimes, so many people in our world do this, sometimes we blame marriage itself for the problems. But here's the truth. The cracks in your marriage did not appear after you got married. You may be noticing them only now, but most of them showed up in your life before the two of you even met one another. You brought some baggage with you. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how the baggage that's destructive to our relationships is not just the result of bad decisions we've made, it's also the result of bad ideas we've believed. I want to chase that a little bit further this morning and talk about our concept of love. Because we live in the middle of this culture that tells us in TV shows and movies and music and books and everywhere we look that love is basically a feeling we have about another person. And don't get me wrong, it's great to have like the warm, fuzzy feelings of love and you're just floating on air and every married person in here has had at least some season where it felt like every love song on the radio was about us. We're just hooked on a feeling high on believing. We can't help ourselves. We love them and nobody else. We fooled around and fell in love, and like a bridge over troubled water, we will ease their mind. It happens, and those feelings are real. But, and this is a huge but, it's the only time I'm going to say huge but during a marriage series, <laughs> feelings come and go. If we buy into the concept that all it takes for marriage to flourish is feeling love toward another person, what in the world do we do when those feelings disappear? I promise a day is coming where you, were, or where you will not feel exactly the way you feel right now. Like for better or worse, you're not going to feel this same way. And if all you've ever had was feelings, the whole thing is going to fall apart. And you guys, I think so many marriages suffer because the individuals within them have an insufficient concept of what it means to love somebody else the way God invites us to do it with a love that transcends our current emotions. A healthy marriage actually requires a different type of love than the love we see all around us. I've talked about this before, but we're at a huge disadvantage when it comes to love living in the English-speaking world because we only have one word for it. We're forced for a lack of options to use the same word to describe the way we feel about our spouse and the way we feel about cheese. Love. Cheese is delicious. It's one of my favorite things on the planet, and I really do love it with all my heart. But you guys, the thing I got going on with cheese is not quite the same as the thing I got going on with Jenny, even if it's the same word. And in the Bible, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are multiple different words we translate love, each with their own unique meaning. And there's something we can learn from that about 
this concept, there are different types of love and different types of loving. And what I want to do today is crack our Bibles open to Luke chapter 6 and look at this space where Jesus contrasts this human way of loving and this divine way of loving. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up there. It's between Mark and John. If you don't have one, you can follow along with the words on the screen. And if you need a Bible, or your kids do, please take one from that Next Steps table before you leave today. We got them in a bunch of different colors for a bunch of different ages. They're a gift to you. We love it when they disappear. But Jesus, in Luke chapter 6, starting verse 32, says, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you'll be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. For some of us, that's a really familiar passage. And it's easy with Bible verses we've heard a number of times to kind of gloss over and be like, oh yeah, that's the the love your enemies thing Jesus said. But we got to understand what Jesus just said is radically countercultural. I mean, he kicks it off with this rhetorical question. He's like, hey, uh, so you love people who love you. What do you want for that? Like an award? You want a cookie? Like, that's a type of love, sure, but this is like simple, natural type of love. There's nothing special about that at all. Everybody loves the people who love them back. It's easy. And Jesus is right. It's easy because it's based on feelings. We feel love because another person has something to offer us. And in our world, our culture, we get told that that's the first question we should ask. What do you have to offer me? The bummer about that is like that's the most natural type of love for us to feel. And often it's the love we start relationships with. But if we're not careful, it's the only type of love we build relationships on. And the truth about that kind of love is that it isn't enough to make a marriage everything a marriage is meant to be. Why not? Because it's conditional. It's based on feelings. It's based on its object. It's this love that's completely contingent upon the performance of the one being loved. And look, it's easy to love people when they're performing, when they're meeting every single one of our expectations, when they look how we want them to look, when they do what we want them to do, when they ask nothing more of us than we want them to ask. But what happens when they don't do that anymore? How do we deal? Well, if all the love we've got, if the entire love we've built our relationship and our future on is just this feeling built on their performance, it completely falls apart because it's based on what somebody else is doing for you. And Like, it's okay to start a relationship with that kind of love. I'll be straight with you guys. Like, the first time I ever laid eyes on Jenny at 16 years old, I look across the room and saw her. I didn't think, well, my, 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 that looks like an intelligent, driven young woman. I thought, ooh, a blonde. I like the blonde ones with cute faces and cute faces. I just looked at her face. I was a good kid. 
Right? That's real though, and it's okay. It's natural to start a relationship by, by being attracted to something somebody else has to offer you. And it's easy for us to love lovely things and lovely people, things that are by their very nature, like inherently worthy of being loved. Like the artwork of Michelangelo, the voice of Michael Buble, the athleticism of Michael Jordan, the great hair and chiseled physique of Michael Howard. These are just these amazing things, am I right? Some stuff is just easier to love than other stuff. But when we begin with the question, what do you have to offer me? We set ourselves up for failure because circumstances and people change. And that kind of love isn't enough to weather the storms and the changes of most marriages. It's based on feelings, and feelings tend to fade and falter when their object fails. So what Jesus is talking about, when he says it's possible to love even our enemies, is an entirely different type of love. It's not a love that seeks value from the people it chooses. It's a value that creates, or it's a love that creates value in the people it chooses. It's kind of like Toy Story. Woody is a fairly unimpressive cowboy toy. His technology is outdated. He's got a pull string. He's, he's faded and, and torn in some places. And he's constantly worried that he's not shiny enough or slick enough to be worthy of Andy's love. That eventually he's going to be cast aside and left behind because he's just not worth loving. It takes Woody two whole movies to finally get it. But he's a toy. We'll forgive him for being slow on the uptake. Andy doesn't love him because he's a valuable collector's item. Andy doesn't love him because he's worthy. Andy loves him because Andy wants to. He chooses it. And the scene at the end of the first movie always gets me. They're, they're all packed up in the car, ready to leave their house because they're moving for the very last time. And before they go, Andy looks at his mom and says, wait, mom, where's Woody? We can't leave without Woody. And what he isn't saying is, excuse me, ma'am, there might be a collector's item inside for which we could one day receive payment. He's saying, mom, I don't want to go where Woody isn't. I want to be wherever he is because I love that raggedy old thing. See, some things are loved because they're valuable, but some things are valuable because they are loved. Let me repeat that. It matters. Some things are loved because... They are valuable, but some things are valuable because they're loved. Thank God for that, you guys, because that's the kind of love he has for us. There isn't anything so inherently worthy about us that Jesus should step out of eternity into the human story and give everything so that we could be forgiven and set free. In fact, there's a lot about us that's unworthy. We rejected God. We ran away from him, but he chased us down anyway because he chose to love us. And his was a love of the will, not a love of feelings, which means we can know in the middle of this shattered world where voices constantly whisper into our heads, you are not enough. You are not worthy. If anyone really knew who you were, they would never love you. We can know in the middle of that message being thundered into our heads continually that we are fully known and we are fully loved anyway because God gave up everything to have us in his family and his love creates infinite value in us. We're valuable because he chose to love us. And that's the type of love he invites us to extend to one another inside of marriage. 
That's the type of love we're built to love our spouse with. So here's the thing I want us to see today as we continue to get rid of the destructive baggage we're carrying and lean into the vision God has for our marriages and our futures. The type of love it takes to make a marriage thrive, that makes a marriage beautiful and love or, and life-giving, is not a feeling, it's a choice. It's an unshakable covenant resolution of the will. Lasting love is a decision based on the character of the lover, not the performance of the beloved. Again, when a person's performing the way that you want them to perform, when they're checking off every box and jumping through every hoop, it's easy to love them, but that love is selfish. It's a feeling based on what they do for you. But God is inviting us to love like he loves with this selfless love that loves even when the feelings go away, even when the boxes don't get checked, even when the hoops don't get jumped through, even when they don't deserve it and they aren't earning it anymore. Like we can decide to withhold love and to not give it when someone isn't performing up to our expectations, or we can decide to give what they need anyway because our love isn't built on a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately scoreboard. It's built on a decision to show up for them in the same way that God showed up for us and loved us despite all of our fears and all of our faults and all of our failings. Like when you decide to be married, you choose not to be a me anymore. You decide you're going to be a we for better or for worse forever. And that decision means that for you, from, from that day forward, love is no longer just a feeling. It's also a choice I can say this like from the bottom of my soul, it's also a feeling. Like, it's this profound, incredible feeling. Inside a marriage, you will feel love for someone and loved by someone in ways that you could never even imagine. There's just something incredible and unspeakably beautiful about deciding to take two stories and write them together as one story from that day forward forever. It's an amazing feeling, but you won't always feel it. And when you don't feel it, it's important to remember this love isn't built on a foundation of my feelings. It's built on a decision of my will. And once you've got that, you begin to realize that instead of being a feeling, love is a lifestyle. Specifically, love is a lifestyle of self-sacrifice. Say that again louder for the people in the back. Love is a lifestyle of self-sacrifice. It's a decision to give all of yourself and the best of yourself to somebody else forever. It's this bent toward being what they need. Not because you get anything out of that, but simply because they need it. And it's lived through that lens even if or even when they aren't doing the same thing for you. And there'll be moments when they aren't because marriage is full of people and people are the worst. <laughs> They're full of all sorts of imperfections. And still, despite that, there are many times when you look at one another and you think, this is everything I ever wanted. We are a match made in heaven. And that may be true. You may be a match made in heaven. But you know what? Tornado and hail and lightnings are also tornadoes and hail and lightning 
are also made in heaven. And there are times when those words are a more accurate description of marriage than anything else on the planet where you look at each other and you think, if I never see you again in my life, that will be a little bit too soon. But listen, if we can realize that the love God created us to share with one another is actually a reflection of the way that he loves us, if we can realize that just like we are not worthy of the love we receive from God, inside of marriage, none of us fully deserves the love we're getting from the other, not even close. If we can see that, then we can move forward toward this place of self-sacrificial love, where we love based on our character, not their performance. And we love them no matter what we're feeling in any given moment. And it's a beautiful place to be because that's the place where we know that we too are loved despite our inherent unworthiness. We too are loved despite the fact that we're fully known. We too are loved not because we're valuable, but we are valuable because we're loved. Because that kind of love is strong. One of my favorite descriptions of it comes from Song of Songs, chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. We talked a few weeks ago about how Song of Songs is this erotic love poem that's slapped smack dab in the middle of the Bible. It is, which is weird, all right? But God put it there to help all of us get a bigger, better vision of what marriage is created to be and what it can be. There's actually three different Hebrew words that we translate love that show up in Song of Songs. And the first one is this word raya. And raya is a friendship love. It's the kind of love you have with, with your best friend, a soulmate even. Somebody you just love hanging out with. You could talk to them about anything and everything all the time for as long as it takes. This is this deep friendship love. And what we see in Song of Songs is that at the core of this relationship between the two lovers is a friendship. And then the, the third word for love in Song of Songs is this word dode. And dode literally means carouse or fondle. It's a, it's a handsy type of loving, all right? Dode is, is the physical dimension to love. It's this deep corporeal passion, this yearning to experience connection with another person completely, physically, emotionally, mentally, holistically. But it's the second type of love in Song of Songs that forms the foundation because it is the type that connects the other two loves together. It's the foundation, and it's the type of love Jesus is talking about in Luke 6. It's this love called ahava. And ahava is a commitment of the will. It's this decision to so bend your life in the direction of another person that you would give anything, including your life, for them. It's a decision that your love is going to be unconditional, not dependent on their performance, but dependent on your character, a choice to give all of yourself and the best of yourself to someone else for good. And it's the type of love in Song of Songs chapter 8 when Solomon writes, Ahava is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench Ahava. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for Ahava, it would be utterly scorned. Such a powerful, poetic description of love. Stronger than death and flame. Unquenchable, immovable, invaluable. It's powerful. 
But my favorite phrase in there is actually the part where Solomon says it's jealous like a grave. I don't know if you guys ever drive by cemeteries and think, I wonder what emotions those graves are experiencing right now. But I don't. I just always think of them as holes in the ground, not things that get into their feels a lot. But I read that and I laughed a little. Then I stopped to consider it and I realized, all right, graves kind of are jealous. They're bad at sharing. Once they get you, they do not give you back, right? It's not like, all right, hang out over there for a little while and then as long as you're back here by Saturday night, mister. No, graves don't share. They don't share. Marriages either. They're built to be this lasting, deep space of covenant connection. And we love with the kind of love God created us to love each other with inside of marriage, that marriages are enduring. And that's God's design. It's kind of cool. Back in Solomon's day, like when he proposed to his beloved in Song of Songs, a young man would initiate a proposal by handing a glass of wine to the girl he wanted to marry. And if she didn't drink it, that was kind of her way of saying, nah, I don't really want to marry you. But if she drank the wine, it was her way of saying yes. But it wasn't just kind of like, yes, maybe, I think so. We'll see how the engagement process goes. Honestly, it just looked like delicious wine, so I wanted to drink of it. And then like, after we get married, if you stop fulfilling her, if I find someone else who I think is more interesting than you, then we'll see. No, nah, it wasn't like that at all. There was no wishy-washiness to it, even a little bit. As soon as she drank it, the two mothers, the mother of the bride and the mother of the groom, would grab a plate, and together they would smash it on the ground. And the shattered pieces of that plate were meant to be a visual picture for that young couple that there is no going back. There's no way that it isn't different from this point forward forever. And I can vouch for that personally. One time growing up, my brother and I were playing dodgeball in our house, and it's really James's fault for not being athletic enough. If he would have just dodged, ducked, dived, dipped, dodged a little better, none of this would have happened. But instead, he left his face right where I threw the ball, and it bounced off him into my mom's Precious Moments collection. Yeah, you guys are going to be shocked to hear this, but our precision super gluing surgery did not fool my mom at all. There's no going back. And there's not meant to be. That's not the message we get in our world or our culture, though. We live in a space that tells us we should chase happiness no matter what. We should lean into our feelings no matter what. And as long as somebody else is making us happy and making us feel special and doing for us what we'd like them to do for us, then they're worth pursuing. But as soon as they're not, we should bail. That's bad idea baggage. It's bad idea baggage that will cause your marriage to be less than God created it to be. God is inviting us to love one another with the same type of intimate, self-giving, selfless love he showed to us. And when we do that, when we decide that this isn't about my feelings, it's about a decision of my will, and I will give what you need when you need it, because I'm committed to loving you in a way not that, that tries to extract value from you, but rather in a way that adds value to you. We set ourselves up for a beautiful future. It's a better way. It's a better way. And so I got a challenge for all of you this morning. 
You know, at the beginning of this series, I said I wanted to resource you as best I could to win in your relationships and win in your marriages. So for all of you who are dating, married, engaged, at the resource table, alongside all the books, which are still there, this morning you're going to find a guide that says, first comes love, then comes baggage, 14 days to a better marriage. It's 14 days of really simple devotional content. It's a small passage of scripture to read a couple paragraphs about it, and then some questions to think through and talk through together. You could do it in five minutes if you wanted. You could really dig in and take more time. But flourishing marriages require a commitment of the will, and so I dare you to make this commitment and go through this thing together. And if you're here and you're single, please take one too. If you read through it, you won't have the the question back and forth with somebody else maybe, but if you read through it, you will carry less bad idea baggage into your marriage someday. If you're here and you don't want to get married and you're single, read through it anyway again, because you will be able to speak more life into the marriages around you. All right, so just to tempt all of you into taking it, because I know some of you are skeptical. You're going to try and sneak out of here without grabbing one. You hope I don't notice. I know how it works. There are random restaurant gift cards shoved into a whole bunch of those booklets. And I know that's a shameless way for a pastor to bribe people into doing what he wants them to do. But if you've been around here for any length of time, you know I'm not above doing shameless things. I'm not about to start being above it now. So grab one, everybody. If you're single, you don't have to, but I'd love it if you did. Married, engaged, dating people, just do it because I think you got nothing to lose. If we'll commit to chasing God together, to chasing this vision that he has for who he made us to be and how he made us to love one another together, if we'll commit to pursuing one another, then what we'll find is it really is easier to love each other with this self-sacrificial love that's built on our character, not their performance, this ahava, deep love that adds life and beauty to our present and our futures, and I think your marriage or your future marriage is worth it. Will you guys pray with me? God, thank you. Thank you for the way that you love us even though we're unworthy. For the way that your love creates infinite value in us even when we weren't valuable enough for you to love us the way that you loved us. For you to sacrifice what you sacrificed to have us in your family. God, I praise you for that love. And I pray, Lord, not only that you would thunder in every single one of our souls, no matter where we're at this morning, that you would thunder that truth against all the voices of our world, against all the voices of our culture, against all the voices in our heads that we're not worthy, that you would, that you would make us aware that we are valuable because you chose to love us and give everything to have us in your family. Lord, would you help us understand that in the middle of a world that speaks death? Would you speak that life and love into us? And would you help us to love one another? Not just in marriage, but as a community, as a church, would you help us to love one another with that same self-sacrificial, committed love that doesn't seek to extract value from people, but adds value to them? May the world look at us, Lord, and see your love. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.